This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome everybody. Tonight we are learning Le'ilu Nishmat Yehudis Liba Bas Michael Zalman. And we are also learning Le'ilu Nishmat Mordechai Ben Rabbi Ephraim, as well as Le'ilu Nishmat Rabbi Avram Ben Chaim Yehuda and Yecheskel Ben Avraham. Okay. So let us uh, let us get started. So tonight we're continuing Be'ezad Hashem the, cla- the from from last week, and that is we left off where Harold was um, sort of you know in charge at the time, and he wasn't the greatest of the people for the you know for the Jews. So we're gonna we're gonna pick up where we left off from from last week. So. Herod, when he he knew that the Jews weren't too happy on his, just like everything about it, that he wanted to make sure that the Jews don't celebrate when he dies. So he actually did something very, very odd, very interesting. Thank God it didn't uh, come into fruition. But he made a uh, he made a command that he wanted that many Jews should be executed on the day that he dies, so it's not going to turn into a day of rejoicing. Thank God it didn't, uh, you know, come into that, uh, uh, you know, to that state. But it was, uh, you know, it's not like things gotten has gotten better. After he died, his son Arculeus he went and he took over. He took over as the king, as the ruler, however you want to call it this time. And he not only made it. He did not only did he not make it better; he made it actually worse for the for the Jewish. To, to, he made it so bad. He actually ruled for nine years, but he made it so bad that you know who eventually got rid of him? Rome got rid of him because Rome again was overseeing you know Judea at the time, Israel at the time. So it got so bad that even Rome was like, "Whoa, you know, like this is too much," and they ended up getting uh, getting rid of him. Uh, after Rome got rid of him, Israel was then ruled by local Roman governors. Those were called procurators. They're the ones that Romans, that the Roman government sent, and they're the ones that rule. So they want a king, think of it as sort of a, a local governmental rule that they had still Rome as overseeing for it. And in fact, the overseeing, you know, regional Roman official was actually in Syria at the time, and they were known as a proconsul. So you have the procurators, the rulers, or the, the, governors of Judea, Israel at the time, and then you have the people that are overseeing them were known as a proconsul. So, the Romans, when they took over having the uh, you know a Jewish king, and again, a Jewish king doesn't mean the Jew the the king was a Jew, but there was a king that was ruling over them. For example, Herod, that that whole uh, you know situation we spoke about last time. So that once they removed that kingdom, the the little freedom, the little independence that the Jews had was even removed even further. And these Roman governors, the procurators, their their main goal, their main ambition was to just enrich themselves, try to get rich and wealthy as quickly as possible. And they did everything under the sun to be able to get to that. They robbed, they murdered, they did everything in between that to try to go, they confiscated. To the point is that they even went and they confiscated the Big Day Kahuna, they confiscated the garments of the Kohen Gadol. And they only released it only on Yom Kippur. So even though the Jewish people at this point in time had a Bet HaMikdash, they had a temple, but they were ruling over a far, a foreign government was ruling over them. And even that, it wasn't like, 
you know, now we live in America and we don't rule, you know, we don't control America. No matter what you say that the Jews control Hollywood and no matter what you say that the blah, 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 all the nonsense. At the end of the day, even if the Jews are controlling that, it has nothing to do with the actual Jews. It's the Erevav or whatever it is. You know, it's not the, the Torah observant, you know, uh, um, you know sect of, of the Jews. So over there, even though you had... The Bet Hamikdash. You had, you know, we had still people. You know, we were still living in the land of Israel, but still we were overseen by Roman government, and we didn't even have the freedom to do the things that we wanted to do. Yes, to a certain extent, and certain times there was more freedom, and certain times there was less freedom. But it, it was still wasn't like, you know, we lived during the time of the first Bet Hamikdash. So, uh, you know, and, and the procreators, one of the other things that they did would be, uh, they would try to bring statues like a Vodazara uh, idolatry into the area, into Jerusalem. So. It, it was, they were really pushing it to a very, very far level. The Roman governors, though, they didn't want to push it too hard because they knew that they could lose their position. So it wasn't sort of like a dictatorship. So they pushed the Jews to like a very, very far off limit. But then they were like, okay, wait a minute. But like they didn't want to lose it. And this is why we were able to have the Bet HaMikdash still, the Sanhedrin was still able to convene during that time. Now, during this time, we spoke about this a little bit last week, there was, uh, there was a group, a sect of, of Jews known as the Tzedukim, or the Sadducees. These were the Jews that sort of, nowadays you would call them, went off the derech, or you know, went off the, the path. They sort of created for himself a different sect of Judaism. They believed in the written Torah. They believed in the Torah Shebech However, they didn't believe in the Torah Shebech They didn't believe in the oral law. Now, even though you don't have to, even if you know the elementary level of the Torah, you know that it's impossible to follow the written law without the, the oral. It's physically impossible. You don't even know what tefillin are. You don't even know where to put tefillin. You, you know, it says, you think people would say you would put it between your eyes. They, there's, to keep kosher, for example, if you don't have the oral law, the oral explanation, no one will be able to know and understand it. I had to probably absorb the written law. You need the oral law. So the, these, this new strain of Judaism, this new sect of Judaism, they deny the validity of the oral law, the oral law, even though it makes no sense. And that's the point, and we'll soon see that if someone wants to believe in something, if someone wants to go and, um, you know, keep to a certain idea, no matter how much people go and tell them this is wrong for you. No matter how much people say this is wrong, it doesn't matter. If you believe that the world is flat, then everybody could scream at you from today until tomorrow, and that's what's going to be. The moon landing was all... I don't know why I'm getting into a wormhole that I don't need to, but let's go there. The moon landing was all just orchestrated by the government and the blah, 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 who people have no time, and they spent all their time on all these wasted time of, uh, you know, these... these uh, um, blogs and Reddit and all this stuff just like, because eh, I'm a genius and I know what I'm talking about. And this is what they waste the time. And if you believe it from now until tomorrow, someone goes and pr- shows you proof. And the proof is, look, there's a picture. Ah, Photoshop. Ah, every way that you can do it. So even though you have this Sidukim and you have it that it's impossible, impossible to understand the written law without the oral law, they still would say that there's no such thing as the oral law. Even though, to the point is that they made their own oral law. So go figure that. You know, like, they have their own oral... Like, it makes no sense whatsoever. But, this is what they believed in. This gave them... And the reason why they wanted to believe that, 
This gave them freedom that they didn't have if you would have followed the Torah the proper way. So, you know, people like this types of freedom, and that's why they were more attracted to it. The, uh, this also appealed to the wealthy, the powerful, and uh, especially people that were at odds at, at fighting with the rabbis. And, you know, I, I saw, I don't know how accurate this is, but I saw a, a percentage that they said that it was about 20% of the Jewish population were tzedukim. That's a huge, huge amount. That, that was a shocking number to me. But this, again, I don't know if it's, it's accurate or not, but this is where, this is where the Jewish people were holding during the time of the, of the second Beit HaMikdash. And, and the tzedukim, the, the Sadducees, they, they sort of encourage a life of hedonism, of, of pleasure-seeking. Like, go and pursue the luxuries of life. And therefore, they wanted to go and to interpret the Torah in their own desire. Now you have, you have these people nowadays, they don't call themselves tzedukim, they call themselves open orthodox, or they call themselves extra modern, or whatever it is that they go and they decide what's right and what's not. They pick and choose of what they're going to go uh, and, 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 you know, and decide. The... One of the examples that they went to, that they interpreted the Torah, the written law, like just the way that it's written and not with any interpretation, is that the Kohanim, the Kohanim specifically the Kohen Gadol, they offered incense on Yom Kippur. So the the way that it says it, the way that they did it, these these Sidukim, is that they first placed it on the coals of the pan outside the Kodesh Kodashim and in the Holy of Holies, and then they would bring it inside. This is uh, you know. The, the Torah law is really the reverse of it. But they were flat about it and they would do it this way. Even though that there is a, you know, a certain uh, idea or concept that if it, the Kohen Gadol didn't you know, do the Avodah of, the, of Yom Kippur properly, they would die. They would not live out there. So again, there's a lot to discuss in that. But assuming that, let's go according to that interpretation, you had still these Kohanim Gdolim, they would die. Meaning that Tzadokim, they were able to push Kohanim Gdolim to be there, there you know, as, as a Kohen Gadol. Meaning that a Kohen Gadol was a Tzadokim. Wasn't even, a, you're talking about one of the highest levels, one of the highest levels, and we'll soon see why they pushed it so much, one of the highest levels of power, let's call it, or leadership in the time of the, in the second Beit HaMikdash, or the first Beit HaMikdash, was the Kohen Gadol. And they would push them, and these are people that didn't even believe in the oral law. And they would do certain avodah, they would do certain work in the, in the Beit HaMikdash, and they would die. And the next year, there is another Kohen Gadol that is also a tzeduki. And they tell them, by the way, this is what you should do. And it's okay. they did it, and they died again. It's like one of those people that just keep on putting their hands in the trash disposal. Be like, oh, let's see what happens now. No, okay, let's see what happens now. Let's see what happens. Like, whoa, you know, like look at history for a second. And this is how much, and no matter how much they were proven wrong, they were so set on their decision that they persisted in their incorrect practices. They were also, the Tzedekim were also allies of the Romans. Um, The... Reason why the Tzedukim started pushing themselves to the becoming Kohen Gadol is that they saw as, uh, you know, the Romans sort of gave free reign to the Bet HaMikdash to a certain extent and they didn't, there was no king over Israel. So they saw now where was the power? The power was, a big part of the power was in the Kohen Gadol. Was it, what, what is in this, in the high priest? So they decided, wait a minute, if that's where the power is, let us go and let us try to get that position. Now, 
you imagine somebody wants to go and wants to try to get the high position of the chief rabbi of the world, the Gadol Hadol. You can't, there's no like, you can't pay someone off and be like, hey, by the way, can you make me the chief rabbi? You, can you make me the rabbi, the Gadol Hadol? You can't do that. But back then, the, the Judea, Israel, was ruled by, by the Roman government. And the Roman government saw that a lot of people wanted to have this position. So what did they do? They made a bidding auction. Whoever was the highest bidder won to be Kohen Gadol. The Tzedukim, they were very wealthy, very powerful. They had a lot of money. So therefore, they were always, they, they outbid everybody else. They bribed themselves to putting themselves in the position of Kohen Gadol. Now the Romans, they saw that this is an easy source of money. They saw that, you know, people really want this. So they would, I'm using air quotes, they would frequently let people go. Let the Kohen Gadol go. Be like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, like, it's not working out for us, your position. Either they would be let go because they wouldn't be alive, or they would let go because the, Kohen, the, the Romans said, you're no longer, uh, you know, you know, you're no longer part of the, you know, the high class citizenship of uh, being a Kohen Gadol. You know, you got a kish, and then they would, you know, auction it again, and then there would be the next, uh, the next highest bidder. And that's why during the time of the first Beth HaMikdash, the time of the first Pesach Mikdash was lasted 410 years. There were only roughly around 18 Kohanim Gedolim. 18, 18. The second Beta Mikdash, there were more than 300 Kohanim Gedolim. And that's not even the full 420 years. Just in that 280 year span, the last 280 years span of the, of the 420 years, there were more than 300 Kohanim. Kohanim Gdolim, I'm sorry. Kohanim Gdolim. Meaning that 410 years, you had 18 Kohanim Gdolim in the first Batamik Dash. The second one, in just 280 years, out of its 420, they had more than 300 Kohanim Gdolim. This is, it became a point, unfortunately, where being a Kohanim Gdol was like being a politician. And anybody knows anything about politics means you can trust a politician to the most extent. Everybody they say, they go completely afterward. You know, this is, it became, was something that was so spiritual, so beautiful, such a connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu became something that was so, let's just call it as a politician. You know, I can't, there's no better word than saying than that. And even the, even the Kohanim that they didn't die and they were just dismissed from their position, they continued to, they had connections. They continued to exploit it for selfish needs. They abused the people, these tzidukim of Kohanim Gdolim. And this eventually brought upon the destruction of the Second Temple. Now there were, there were signs, there were quite a few signs that there was an impending destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. First and foremost, we had Rav Tzadik, a leading rabbi, a leading sage at the time. He fasted for 40 years. He saw, he saw the signs were very obvious. You have tzidukim in the Kohanim, as being a Kohen Gadol. You have the, the, the level of the the priesthood, you have the level of the, you know, the observance was going down and he saw that and he said, you know what, it's not going to last. The Beth HaMikdash is not going to last. God is not going to allow to put his presence in such a place. And he started fasting for 40 years. You know what, 40 years? The, the Muslims, Havdil, they would fast for 40 days. And then even that, forget about it. You know how much, you know how people get hangry? You know, when you get it, when you get hungry, and then you can put the, you know, oh, forget about it. Forty days, you know, you know, that's when, d- during Ramadan, there's a lot of problems that come up. When people are doing something for God, right? This is what happens. Come from, that's 40 days. Rav Tzaddik fasted for 40 years. Now, obviously, he was eating at night to, you know, sustain himself. But 40 years straight of fasting. So that's the sign number one that should have stuck out that Rav Tzaddik is fasting. So fasting that he says that the, the, the Beit HaMikdash is not going to last. 
Sign number two was a Sanhedrin left their location. They went to a different place. They used to convene in a certain place in the Bet HaMikdash, in the temple area. But they saw that there was a lot of, let's say, Kohanim, or, or you know, like this Kohanim, they would, they would engage in this, let's call it illegal activity. Gangs of robbers and murderers to, to sort of try to enrich themselves. And the Jewish courts, the Sanhedrin, they were powerless to prosecute them. Meaning that they could judge them and they could conv- you know, convict them to a certain sentence, but they wouldn't be able to carry out that sen- sentence that they, you know, that they were able to come to through judgment. So because they were not able to go and prosecute them, they decided that it's better that we don't go and convene, we don't go, we don't say, if they didn't sit, the rule is that in order for the Sanhedrin to go and to have the authority that they need to, they have to sit in the place, in a certain place in the Beth HaMikdash, in the temple area. If they're not there, then they can't, they can't judge the cases like they usually do. So the, the Sanhedrin goes and says, if we can't prosecute, if we can't put, if let's say we come to a certain conclusion, we can't put that into fruition, why are we even judging it? The Romans were over them, the Tzedukim were over them. There was like places from all of this, and what's the point? So they moved themselves from judging in the, in the Bet HaMikdash. And it's another very, very impending sign of the, impend- of, the, of the destruction. There was also, of course, we can't you know, forget to mention the Tzedukim, how they were overtaking all these high power positions, and they didn't even believe in the oral law. They were manipulating the Torah to their own, to, to their own uses. There, there was also something very interesting that happened, that for 40 years before the destructions, there was gates to the Bet HaMikdash, or gates to the sanctuary, and these were extremely, extremely heavy. You need tens and tens of people to go and push it open. When the, about 40 years, the gates started opening by themselves. They started just like, oh, meaning that Akadosh Baruch was saying, well, look, look, you know, like you think you had a protection with these gates, now I'm opening up and the enemy could come in. Also, the Gemara Yuma, page 39b, goes and says that for the last 40 years, the western candle of the menorah did not burn all day. It used to burn all day, and it stopped burning all day. There were also the family, there were certain families that knew how to make, the, there was a secret method of making the lechem apanim, and also the incense as well. So they decided that from then on, they refused to, to reveal this, this secret. Why? Because they were nervous if there's going to be impending destruction. At this impending doom that's happening, we don't want this to get hidden, you know, into the hands of the Gentiles. So they went and they kept all this. They started keeping this much more secretive. The Gemara in Sotah, page forty-seven, a goes and says Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai suspended the practice of the sota water. There used to be a sota water. If a woman would be, you know, suspected of being unfaithful, she would have a certain procedure where she would go to the Bet Hamikdash and drink a certain water. You know, I'm not going to go through the whole story over there what happens, but this was also stopped during this time. And we see there was a lot of things that were going down, spiritually speaking, in, the, in Yerushalayim and in the Bet HaMikdash. But says Rabbi Victor Miller, during this time, says, well, let's take a step back over here. That we can't fall into the error that this whole last 40-year period was a time of national corruption. It was true that there was corruption. But where was the corruption? The corruption was in the Tzedukim. Because if you look at it, this is during the time where the great disciples, the great students of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, you had Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus over there that went to study Torah, went and he, fa- and he, and he fasted, whoever was with us in our stories that we, we spoke about him. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva lived during this time, a little bit further on, but he lived during the time of the destruction of the second Beth Amidash. He separated from his wife for 24 years, came back with 24,000 students. Not just students, these were gedolei adol, these were high, high level of people. 
This is a time where the Jewish you know, Torah learning was on a very, very high level. Don't get me wrong. It was very, very high. But for who? For the Orthodox sect, for the Perushim, for the Pharisees. But you have, unfortunately, the Tzedukim. You have the Herodians, let's call them. Those are the people that, that you know, they, they corrupted what they, they twisted the Torah. So you had the nation of Warren itself, says Rabbi Victor Miller, was a very high level. They followed Torah leaders. And they practiced Torah with, with enthusiasm. But unfortunately, there was a large sect called the Tzedukim. And they were going and they were pushing the Jewish nation spiritually down. Now, <clears throat> taking a pause over there, going a little bit back in time, the grandson of Herod, the grandson of Herod, his, his name was Agrippa. Agrippa was orphaned when he was just three years old because his father, Herod, was missing some bolts. And his, his father, so that's his grandfather was Herod, his father was named as Astabolus. Astabolus went and he was killed by his own father for, cause he had an insane suspicion. He had a, Herod had a suspicion that, his, you know, about his wife. So he had his wife executed. We spoke about that last week. And then he was nervous that his son was going to go and take sort of revenge on it. So he had his son killed, which is Agrippa. Now, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, which was Astabolus. Now you have Agrippa, which is the grandson of Herod, and he was three years old when all this happened. By six years old, where was he going to go? So he was shipped off to Rome. He was shipped off to Rome, and he was educated with, uh, you know, the Roman aristocrat, the high level of Roman society. He was put into the into that sort of educational uh, system. And during this time, he went and he bef- he befriended two future emperors. Now he didn't know that they were emperors, but he befriended two very high level people. One of them was Caligula, and the other one was Claudius. And this. Um, you know, years go by and Caligula eventually ended up becoming a emperor and he decided that he was emperor of Rome. He decided that he wants a statue of himself in the Beit HaMikdash. So you know, there are certain people that have a high level of arrogance. They have a high level of gava where they need to be worshipped in their own home, in their own palace. But when they go outside, they pretend to be like normal people and be like, okay, fine, I'm a humble person. And they tell you that they're humble because obviously they're humble. And then you have people that know, not only they want you to worship them inside the house, but also outside the house. But then you have people on another level where not only they want to be worshipped outside, but like, we're, you're worshipping your God? No, now you worship me. Like, now they go, so this, this emperor, he went and he wanted a statue of himself in the Beit HaMikdash. Now the Jews were going, like, what? To put a statue of an emperor, of a non-Jewish emperor, and forget even a Jewish emperor, put a statue in the Beit HaMikdash? It's un, you know, it's unheard of. Even you go to Jewish houses over here, religious, any, anywhere around the world, religious Jewish houses, you generally don't even see statues. Again, maybe some will have, but generally speaking, the more religious you are, you don't see statues. But to put a statue of a, of an emperor? So, at this point in time, the, this Agrippa, the grandson of Herod, was in Rome, and he decided he's going to do something about it. So he goes, and this, he was friends with the Roman emperor, and he invited him to a very, very lavish banquet, a beautiful banquet. And to the, it was all in honor of the emperor. And the emperor was so, like, happy, and so much, so much, he had so much gratitude to Agrippa for what he did for him, this big party just for him, that he said, what do you want? Let me give you something. Let me return the favor. Let me, you know, let me reward you. So Agrippa goes and he says, listen, I don't want any reward for myself. I, I don't need anything for myself, but do me a favor. Cancel your order that you want to erect a statue in the temple. So 
the emperor said, you know what, for you, you got it. I'll cancel it. And he, you know, the, the emperor was really pushing really strongly to have this, his statue put in there. But Agrippa was able to go and to um, cancel that, you know, that, that order from the emperor. So, uh, you know, Agrippa already started doing something good for the Jewish nation. After the death of the Roman emperor, Agrippa over here had connections in Rome. He was a very well-connected guy. And he started, he influenced the Senate to go and elect Claudius, his other friend, to go and become the Roman emperor. And because of his connections and his pull and his push, Claudius ended up becoming the next emperor. So as a reward to Agrippa for helping him become emperor, Claudius decided that at this point in time, we said that there was this procuratorship where there was a procurator, a governor, a ruling governor on, on the Jew, uh, you know, on, on Judea, on Israel. But now, they, the, you know, the, the Roman emperor decided that we're going to abolish that and we're going to put you, the grandson of Herod, to go back and to be, uh, to be king uh, over, over Judea. So Agrippa went and he ruled. He ruled over Judea. And I, I don't know if I should say surprising or not, it was actually pretty good. He, he actually did like a good job. He, he, he followed halakha. He, unfortunately, his reign only lasted for three years. But he followed Jewish law. He went and anything that he questioned that he had, he would turn to Rabbi Gamliel. He would turn to the head of Sanhedrin and be like, what am I supposed to do? He would look for advice. And, you know, when he would come to um, the Bet Amidash, he would give a kabon to he, he would give a thanksgiving sacrifice. On Shavuot, he gave the first, the, you know, he, gave the, he brought a gift of the first fruits to the temple together with all the other Jewish people that were coming up. On Sukkot, after Shemitah, the, the, you know, they would go, the king would read from the Torah. They read the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. And he gathered all the people over there. And the Torah requires that a Jewish king go and read the, uh, you know, the Sefer Devarim. And the law is, the halakha is, that a king is allowed to sit while he reads. Because he's a king. And he's allowed to sit while he reads the Torah. But Agrippa put his own honor on the side. He put his own kavod on the side. And he decided that he's going to stand in the favor, in the Torah's honor while he's standing. And he was reading and he was reading the, the Sefer Devarim until he comes to the 17th chapter of Devarim, verse 15. And on there, it said something that shook him to his core. It says, the Pasuk goes and says, You shall not appoint a foreigner over yourself, one who is not your brother. Meaning that you should not appoint somebody who is not Jewish, who is not your brother, as a king over, over Israel. And he read this and he started crying. And he started crying because he was not a brother of the Jewish people. He wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't a Jew of the Jewish caliber. Again, we spoke about this last week. And the, the level of, of how he was, you know, in, you know, being Jewish, you know, in that, uh, in that context. So he started crying. And the kind-hearted people that were over there, they were put in a very, very difficult test. There was so many long years of suffering under arrogant abusive rulers, and finally they found somebody who is humble, who is kind, like Agrippa, and, you know, he was sort of like a pious ruler, a righteous ruler, and he wept because of of his disqualification. So their hearts of the Jewish people, they started melting in pity, and they cried out, don't fear, don't worry, you are our brother. Right? It didn't say like you walk down and say, hey brother, what's going on? My brother. It, It said literally, it said, no, you are part of our nation, you are our brother. However, the Chachamim, they did not approve of this reaction. Why? Because his mother was from the family of Herod, and that does not qualify him to be a king of Israel. And therefore, 
the flattery that the Jewish nation gave to this king was not proper. And this is where the, the sages went as far to say in the Gemara so top page 41b. The Rabbi Nassan says that the moment the Jewish, this moment, the Jewish people became liable for the destruction of the, of the Bet HaMikdash in Jerusalem because they improperly flattered Agrippa. Now during this time, the Jewish people obviously they loved him. But the Greeks, the Greeks, the, as much as the Jews loved them, that's how much the Greeks hated him. And the Greeks lived at that point in time in Israel. The, um, the, the Greeks, they, they came to such a point of such a hatred towards Agrippa that they decided that they're going to go and try to assassinate him. And one time he was visiting Caesarea and they poisoned his, his drink. And after five days of him fighting for his life, he died at the age of 54. Now he died. Now the question was, is what Rome is going to do? Are they going to go appoint another governor? Are they going to go and appoint another you know, king? Or are they going to go back to where it was before, where it was these Roman governors? So the emperor's advisors, they said, let's restore the rule of the procreators, meaning the, the people of the, you know, that ruled the government that were Roman. And the governor, the, the Roman emperor was convinced and they started to put back this procuratorship back into play. And this lasted for 22 years, meaning that after the death of Agrippa until the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash was roughly about 22 years. During this time, there were seven Romans that occupied the office. The, um, one of the Romans that were occupying it was, his name was Felix. And, you know, during this time, it wasn't good for the Jewish people. It went from bad to worse. There was bloodshed, there was murder that was going on. There was daily fights that were going on between the Jewish people and the foreign rulers. And Felix, this Roman governor at that point in time, he would persecute anybody, anybody who thought, he thought would be a member of his opposing you know, group, would, he would automatically go and kill them. And the opposing group, they, they called themselves the Zealots. These, these Zealots, they wanted to go and they wanted to rebel against Rome. They were like, enough already. Like you put so much, so much in the corner, they wanted to fight against, uh, fight against uh, Rome. So anytime that Felix thought that somebody was part of that group, he would go and he would have killed them. One year after Felix was appointed, the emperor, Claudius, he died. And uh, a famous emperor by the name of Nero, which I'm sure you all have heard of, he was the one who succeeded him. This is the year 54 Common Era, right? The, the, you're talking about, t- about 26 years before the destruction of... I'm sorry, no, 15, about 15, 16 years before the destruction of the, of the Beth HaMikdash. Nero, he was the sixth emperor of Rome, and he was cruel, corrupt, twisted, he, to the point that he killed his own family. You know that you know that's the level that of twisted that he was. He even burned down a certain city in Rome, and he enjoyed just watching the flickering of the flames. Uh, he was a corrupt, twisted uh, guy, and his his goal, like he was, his focus was not really the government, not really Rome and expanding the empire, but really was pursuit of his pleasures. And that's why he loved the bloody sports, the coliseums, the fighting, and that all that that he had. So he focused more on his pleasures, and he. Sort of all the provinces that he ruled over, he wasn't as you know meticulously supervising them as the previous Roman officials you know did. So because of this, Felix realized Felix, the Roman governor that ruled Israel, he saw that the Roman emperor is not looking. So he decided that he has now more freedom than he had before, and this ended up the the you know murder went up, robbery went up, the Greeks. 
you know, to, to a certain point that the, there was Greek cities. These Greek cities were where they had a lot of non-Jewish residents. One of them was called Caesarea. It's a place that still exists in Israel. It's called Caesarea. It's a beachfront, uh, you know, area, and it's on the coast. And uh, the the Greeks that lived there, amongst the Jews, decided that they want to strip the the Jewish people of any of the city's citizenship, meaning that. A Jew that goes into Caesarea, they're considered alien. They're considered a foreigner. This is an area, this is a place for the, for the Greeks. So they brought it before the emperor Nero. And Nero, he loved the Greeks. He loved the, the idea. The Greeks were very much after desire. And that's what his focus was also. So he goes and he agrees. And he says, he issues a ruling, a decree, that anybody living in Caesarea, if you're a Greek, that's your hometown. If you're not Greek, then you are a foreigner. This was also one of the last straws that sort of like pushed the Jews over. The Greeks now decided that they there was better you know, there was there was synagogues in the area, there was places of worship in the area. The Greeks the Greeks would go now and they would set up workshops next to the synagogues just to disturb the prayers. And they would do things just to go and harm the Jewish people to start just just like just for like getting them under their nerves. So the Jewish people went to the government. They didn't take anything into their own hands, and they bribed the governor. They bribed the governor. Say, listen, we're going to give you X amount of money. You know, please help us over there. He took the money and he did nothing. Then the Greeks would go and they would taunt the Jewish people by killing certain animals, like birds, for example, in front of the shul to sort of taunt them. And the Jews like had enough of that, and they started charging this, these Greeks. Now the Romans came. The Jews thought, okay, finally, the Romans are coming to help us. But who did the Romans come? Instead of chasing the Greeks who are harming them, they went and they chased the Jews. The Jews didn't know what to do. They started running away from the Romans. And they grabbed the Torah scrolls and they started running out. You have, you're in a synagogue and you have to run out. What is the first thing that you grab? A sef- grab the Sefer Torah. So they ran out. And they went and they went in front of the Roman governor and said, look what's happening. So not only the Roman governor didn't help them, but he charged them and says, who gave you permission to take out the Torah scrolls? So not only did he go to go and help him, they were getting pushed on all sides. Now one thing that you know, you never push someone into a corner. Because if you push someone too much into the corner, they're going to fight back. And this is the way that the Jewish people, when they would, they would go and they would fight war, they would never corner somebody. They would always give them a way out. Why? Because you always have to have a way out. If you put someone in the corner, at the end of the day, they're going to fight back. And they're going to fight back strong because if they feel this is the only thing they have, also an animal, you don't want to put an animal into the corner, they're going to fight back. So, the Jew, the, unfortunately, the Romans, the Greeks, everybody was pushing the Jews into a corner. And it got tighter and tighter and tighter. To the point that if anybody brought any claim against a foreigner, it was a Jewish person, they gave it, brought a claim against a non-Jew, whether the claim was justified or not, they went with the, with the non-Jew. And the Roman governor would go at this point and without any embarrassment, without any bushot, go into the temple treasury, into the Bet HaMikdash and take out money for his own personal personal gains. To the point that he went, the, this Roman governor, he went and he encouraged the Romans to instigate riots. He says, no, instigate, push riots. One day, the year was uh, 66 Kamen Era, about four years before the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, 3,600 Jews were killed in the city of Yerushalayim. Florius, who was the Roman governor at that time, he was hoping that the Jewish people of Yerushalayim would attempt to avenge it. 
He was like, he was like, okay, let's. Let, he pushed him to the corner. And now he's like, let them fight back. Why did he want to fight back? Because he wanted to do some sort of mass killing. He wanted to destroy a large sect of the Jewish nation. And he says, now they're going to. He killed thirty six hundred. Now they're going to attack me. Now I have a reason to go and attack them full force. And not only that, I could take over the temple. But instead of attacking the Jewish people, they arranged a sort of a peaceful protest, a peaceful march, let's call it. And they started marching to make, and they wanted to make peace with the governor. The Roman soldiers, they were lusting for blood. They just killed 3,600 people. They were lusting for blood that even though it was just a peaceful protest, a peaceful crowd of people that were just marching to make peace, they went and they chased after them and they ended up killing many Jews. And the soldiers were bloodthirsty. They continuing the assault and they were making their way towards Temple Mount, towards the Bet HaMikdash. When the Jews saw that they're going after the Bet HaMikdash, that's when they all of a sudden they were like, no, 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 this is where it's going to stop. The Jews gathered and they blocked the entrance of the Bet HaMikdash. They went and they physically put themselves on, they blocked the entrance. And I get, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was in the eyes of the Jews or whatever, the Roman, gov- the Roman soldiers, they took a look at that and they're like, all right, we're not messing with that. And they turned around and they retreated. And the governor at that point in time realized that he pushed himself to a certain point. He was fearing that there was going to be some sort of retribution from the Jewish people that he went back to his estate, which was at, at that time in Caesarea. Now, the way that we see over here is that the Jewish people are getting pushed into a very bad place from the outside government, from the foreign rule. Let's look at some stories that the Gemara says of what was happening to the Jewish people inside Yerushalayim, inside the Jewish nation. So there's a Gemara in Gitin, page 58a, that goes and says that there was an incident, and there was a certain man who, to say it the nice way, had, had, had his eyes on his master's wife. And his master was a carpenter, and he was the apprentice. And one day, his master, his, his boss, goes over to him and he says, I need to borrow some money. For whatever reason, the apprentice had money and the boss didn't. He asked him, can you lend me some money? So he said, sure, not a problem. Send your wife to my house and I will, uh, I will give the money to her. And he sends his wife and his wa- his, somehow his wife didn't come back for three days. He then, this, and what happened was this apprentice, he kept the wife in his, in, you know, in his home. And then he went, he went back to his, uh, to his boss three days later. And he goes over to, and his boss goes over and says, you know, where's my wife? And he says, I don't know, you don't know where she is? He says, I sent her immediately away, three days ago she was with you, you know what? He says, I heard that uh, there was some youth that abused her on the way back. And they had their way with her. So the boss goes over to this, uh, to his apprentice and he says, he said, are you serious? He said, what am I supposed to do? He says, what am I supposed to do? So the apprentice says, if you want my advice, I say divorce her. Get rid of her. You don't want this this headache. Get rid of her. So the boss goes and says, "Listen, you know, I think you're right, but she has a ketubah. She has a marriage contract, and and you know, when I divorce her, I'm gonna have to give her a lot of money." He says, "I don't have that much money to give her." So the the apprentice goes and says, "Listen, don't worry. I have money saved on the side. I'll lend you the money so that you could go and get divorced and give her the you know give her the money." So that's what happened. He lent her the money. He lent the, the, his boss the money, and the boss went and he divorced his wife. After the boss went and he divorced his wife, his apprentice went and he married this woman. He went and he married his woman. But the story goes on, says Igmara, something sick. That the time came that the debt was due. After all, the apprentice, he lent him money to the boss. And now it was time to pay back. It was time to go and pay back. But he didn't have, the boss didn't have the money. 
So he goes over to, to, to his apprentice and says, I don't have the money. What do you need to do? So the apprentice says, okay, so now you have to work for me. If you can't go and pay me back, that was, you know, if you can't pay me back, now you have to work for me. So what happened? He had no choice. He went and he was working for his previous employee. And his previous employee was sitting with his previous wife. And they were married at this point in time. They were eating. And the previous husband was going and he was serving his, his previous wife and his previous employee. And it came to a certain point that he just started, he broke down and he cried. And his tears fell into the cups that he was holding, the drinks that he was going to serve his, his, you know, his ex-wife and his ex-employee. And then, at that time, the Gemara says, On that moment, This is where the Jewish people are sentenced for the destruction. If they were remaining silent in the face of such injustice. And the question that you could ask and be like, okay, so he did a few things wrong. But like, what was the extent of the wrong? Could it have, was he wrong for giving advice to say divorces? Why do you give advice whatever you want? You give it, that was my advice. You want to listen to it, you don't listen to it. So what, did he, was it wrong that he married her? It was a single woman at this point in time. He wanted to marry her. Was it wrong that this, this boss went and worked for him? He needed, you know, he owes me money. Why not? Now he has to work for me. So he was able to find every loophole that was possible that he was doing nothing wrong. You know, sometimes people think that they could cheat the system. And they're so happy. Like, oh, don't worry about it. I knew how to cheat the system. Like, why are you happy with that? You should not be happy by saying that you could cheat the system. Every loop, there's a reason why there's rules, there's a reason why there's regulations. And yes, he was able to use every loophole to say, yes, it's not such a big deal. But you know what? They want, want, you want to hear a lesson that you can learn from this? That if something is wrong, it's wrong. It doesn't matter how you're going to go and how you're going to give yourself excuses and why it's right. That's one story the Gemara says. The Gemara Gitin, page 55b, goes and says another story. There's a very famous story. It's a story of Kamsa and Ba Kamsa. Now we're going to say the story and we're going to try to analyze it a little bit. So let me re- refresh everybody's mind and memory with this story. That... There was a certain Jew who was unnamed in the Gemara, and he had a friend. His friend was Kamsa, and then he had an enemy. The enemy's name was Bar Kamsa. So he had a friend, Kamsa, an enemy, Bar Kamsa. He goes over to his servant, and he says, go invite Kamsa, my friend. The servant made a mistake, and instead of going to Kamsa, his friend, he went over to his enemy, Bar Kamsa. So the party starts. The host is being a good host, is making his rounds. And all of a sudden, he sees his enemy over there, Bar Kamsa. And he says, what are you doing over there? Get out of here. He says, I didn't invite you. And Bar Kamsa says, no, listen. He says, I understand. Maybe, you know, If there was some sort of mistake, don't worry about it. I'll pay for my meal. Whatever I eat, whatever I drink, I'll cover myself. I'll cover my expense. So the host says, uh, I couldn't care less if you cover it. I want you out. So the Barkamsa goes and says, listen, don't embarrass me. Do me a favor. Let me stay. I'll pay for half of this feast. Imagine it was a wedding. You're putting $100,000 down. He says, I'll pay fifty grand. Just let me stay over here. Don't embarrass me. The host says, there is a door. Get out. I don't want you and I don't want your money. At this point, Barkamsa goes and says, listen, do me a favor. Do not embarrass me. I will pay for the entire feast. You spend a hundred grand on this. I will write you a check for a hundred thousand dollars. Just don't kick me out. This party is all on me if you don't kick me out. The host says, "Take you and your money." He got his guards, the bouncers, or whatever it was, and they threw him out of the party. 
Bar Kamtza gets, th- gets thrown out of the party. He goes and he says, there was a big rabbi at that time over there, Rabbi Zechariah ben Afkalos. He was present during that time. He says, you did not come to my defense. I was being embarrassed publicly. I was being thrown out. You did not come to my defense. You're all going to pay. Bar Kamtza went and he traveled to Rome. And he went to the Emperor Nero. And he goes and he says, the Jewish people are planning a rebellion against you. And the emperor says, what? What are you talking about? Why are they planning a rebellion? He says, nah. he says I can prove it. He says, how are you going to prove it? He says, go send an offering, send a korban, and send the sacrifice and see if they accept it. Watch, they're not going to accept it. So the emperor says, you know, he sent sacrifice before. He says, no problem. He finds a very, very, you know, beautiful animal a, that's kosher, and he goes and he sends him to the temple to go and be sacrificed as a korban. The Bar Kamsa goes as they're traveling, and he makes a small blemish, a small moom on this animal. The, it's either he did something on the upper lip of the animal, or on the eyelids of the animal. So he made a blemish on the animal, which would be considered a blemish according to Jewish law, but for the Roman law, it was not considered a blemish. So when Bar Kamsa came, with the, and the Roman delegation came with this animal... The Qa'anim inspected the animal and they saw that it's defective. They saw that there's a blemish. So they weren't sure what to do. And they were considering to go and offer and this, this Qa'ban on the Bet so that they don't offend the emperor. However, Rabbi Zechariah was there and he says, wait a minute, he says there's a halakha. It's a blemished animal, cannot be offered. If it's blemished, I don't care who gave it, you can't offer it. So they went and they didn't offer it. But then they said, you know what? But now let's... You know, we knew, they realized, that Bar Kamsa made the blemish. So they wanted to go and kill Bar Kamsa. So Rabbi Zachary goes, and Rabbi Zachary goes, and it says, wait a minute. It says, what do you mean? If you kill him, then anybody's going to think later on that if somebody makes a blemish on a koban, they need to be killed. That's not the halakha. It says, we can't kill him. So they decide they're not going to do anything. So they went, the delegation, Bar Kamsa, the delegation went back to Rome, and they said the offering was not accepted. At this point, Nero was furious. He says, what? I sent them a kosher and, and they don't want to go and accept my koban? This brought about one of the darkest chapters in our history. And Rabbi Yochanan goes and says, the Gemara goes on and says that the excessive humility of Rabbi Zechariah ben Afkalos was what destroyed our temple. And I heard a very interesting you know, explanation of this, that sometimes in life, we need to stand up for something. We need to go and have a very, very firm hold of what we believe in. And because of the, as the Gemara says, the anvisanuso, because of the humility, because of the fact that Rabbi Zechariah ben Abkhalos, he did not stand up, he was not firm, firm we lost the Bet He should have stood up. He should have went and been firm whichever way, I don't know, whatever way you want to go, he, that it shouldn't have came to this conclusion. And sometimes in our lives, there are these crucial moments that they come, and that's when we need to really stand up strong. And if we miss that, oh, we miss the boat. There was once a story that old, the, a few hundred years ago, when people would make a wedding, they would invite the poor people first, and they would feed the per, poor people first. There was one rich man who was making a wedding, and there was a certain poor person, an extremely, extremely poor person, that he came late, and he missed the part where he's able to feast for the poor people. And it was the time of the chupa. the chupa started. 
So he goes over to the Baal Simcha. He goes over to to one of the, the you know the, the father of the of the you know of the Chatan or the Kala, and he goes over to him and he says, "Listen, do me a favor." He says, "I missed you know the the meal. I missed the food." Can you do me a favor? Can you give me some snuff, some shmektabak? Snuff is like something that you you snore through your nose. It's like a, a flavored tobacco. It sort of gives you a little bit of uh, rejuvenation. So he, this poor person goes over to this. Uh, um, if you want to know where this makes the greatest, uh, you know, entry into the Jewish uh, uh, nation is on Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, everyone has snuff tabak. Other than that, nobody has uh, this shmektabak. No one has this snuff. But anyways, he goes over to the father. And he says, please, can you do me a favor? Can you give me some snuff? He says, I haven't eaten in so long. I thought I was going to eat over here. I came late. I'm going to pass out. Please give me some snuff so I can revive myself. So it was the chupa, the father of the... <laughs> goes and says, I can't give it to you right now. I, you know, I wish I could have. I'm marrying off my kid. He says, you got to come to me a little bit later. And the man, the old poor man begs him. He says, please, I can't. I need something. Give me just a little bit. And the father says, I can't, I'm walking my daughter down the chuppah. How am I going to go and I'm going to give it to you? So the poor man goes into the corner. He sits on the floor and he looks up to heaven. And he says, Hashem, God, he says, I'm not wealthy. I don't have much. In fact, I don't have anything. I don't even have food. I'm starving. But even the little snuff that I asked for, even that you can't give me, even that I don't get. And with that, he passes out. Sometimes goes by. The wedding comes and goes. Months goes, turns into years. And this rich man who made this wedding starts losing his money. And slowly, slowly, he is losing all his, um, he's losing all his money to the point that he becomes an extreme pauper. Ex- level of poverty was below the level of poverty. He was extremely, extremely poor. So he went over to his rabbi, a huge, huge rabbi. And he goes over to his rabbi and he says, I don't understand. He says, I'm religious. I keep, I do everything that I need to do. Nothing has changed. So how come I had money before and now I don't have any money more? Rabbi, please tell me. So the rabbi says, let me do a tabat chalom. Let me go and let me, not a tabat chalom, let me do a shalat chalom. Let me go and see what's going on in the upper world. He goes and he asks a question through a dream. And he goes, the rabbi goes and says, come to me tomorrow. The guy comes to him back tomorrow, and the rabbi goes over to him and he says, Listen, it was about two, three years ago, you made a wedding? And the rich guy says, Yeah. He says, During that wedding, was there a poor man that came to your wedding under the chuppah and asked you for snuff? And he, looked, he thinks back and he's like, Yeah. You know, there was a guy. I was like, I was like about to walk my, I, I couldn't give him anything, but yeah. So the rabbi goes over to him and he says, you know, that because you caused this hardship to this poor man, this poor man got extreme suffering for what you did, he said, all your money went to this poor man. Now this poor man became extremely wealthy and he has all your money because of the hardship that you gave him. So this wealthy man who is now poor goes over to the rabbi and says, Rebbe, what am I supposed to do? He says, what can I do at this point in time? So the rabbi goes over to him and says, listen, this man who was once poor and now wealthy, he's making a wedding. Go to the wedding and wait for the chuppah. When he's going under the chuppah, ask him for some snuff. If he doesn't give you snuff, you will change the, everything back to the way that it was before and you'll get your money back. So he says, fine. He goes and he travels to this wedding and he waits and all the, you know, and comes the chuppah and he, you know, the, the father is walking down his daughter to the chuppah and he walks up over to the father and he says, 
do me a favor, I'm starving. I don't have anything, I couldn't eat anything. Can you please give me some snuff? Thinking that the father is going to be like, I'm walking my daughter down. Either like, you want snuff now? He's like, Kish, get out of here, I'll come to me later. But that's not what happened. The father, this wealthy man goes and stops, and he says, you need snuff? Sure. He takes his hand in his pocket, and he takes out a handful of boxes of snuff. And he says, what flavor do you want? Do you like the mint? Do you like the lemon? Do you like the cinnamon? What do you want? Which flavor do you want? At this point in time, this poor man who was once wealthy was asking for snuff. He passes out. He faints. Not because he didn't get you know the snuff, but because he didn't get the snuff. Because he wanted that he would say no, but now that he got the snuff, now he passed out. He realized that now he's not getting his money. He passed out. He goes back over to his rabbi. And he says, goes to the rabbi, rabbi, it didn't work. I asked him during the most crucial part of the wedding and I thought he's for sure going to say, what are you kidding? Get out of here. I'm going to give you snuff. But not only did he stop the wedding, he gave me options. He went and he gave me five options. So the rabbi says, he goes over to the rabbi, rabbi, what should I do? So the rabbi goes over there and says, call this wealthy man in to me. So this wealthy man comes in and the rabbi goes and tells him, he says, you know, he says, he, he, the rabbi explained him the situation. Really, you are supposed to be poor. You got the money of this wealthy guy because of what he did. But I have a solution for both of you. He goes over to the wealthy man and he says, I want you to make the, you know, the old wealthy man, now the pauper, I want you to make him your partner. And you make him your partner, I promise you, you're going to be blessed with extra money that you have now and you'll have a partner. And he says, really, this should be for you together. And this wealthy man, he respected the rabbi. And he says, fine. He made him a partner. And he ended up, the, the, the business boomed even more. And they were even wealthier than they were when they were just, you know, separate. The lesson that we learn from this is that sometimes we come into our moments in our lives that are life-changing. And if we don't act correctly, we can miss the boat. Imagine if before he walked down the chuppah, the original wealthy man, the first wealthy man, And the rabbi goes over to him and he says, by the way, there's going to be a poor man who's going to come to you at the worst possible time. And he's going to ask you for snuff. If you don't give it to him, you're going to lose your fortune. But if you're going to give it to him, you're going to withhold your fortune. Do you think that this guy's going to... He's going to be looking around for the poor man. The second that that poor man comes, this guy's going to stop all the wedding, stop the orchestra. He's going to bring... He says, forget about the snuff. Let me go and give you... Let me take out the smorgasbord. Let me go and feed you out over there. I don't want to go and I don't want to lose my wealth. Because there's so many times that in our life, there are certain moments, there are, so, there, there are certain scenarios that if we miss capitalizing on those, they will change our lives forever. So the lesson that we can learn is that we have to utilize every single moment, every single scenario that we don't know, maybe this is the scenario that will change my life. Maybe this little mitzvah of getting some snuff to a poor person is going to change my life forever. Maybe me going and dressing this modestly, this extra one time, is what's going to bring me my Yeshua, my salvation. Maybe if I go and I learn now an extra five minutes... Maybe this is going to give me the salvation. Maybe if I'm going to go and I'm going to be careful to guard my eyes and next time I walk in the street, maybe that's going to give me my salvation. There are so many tests that we have in our day-to-day lives and we don't know what is that one moment, that one situation that will change our life forever. And, you know, the Chazal tells us we're human and we make mistakes. And in fact, David, for example, David Amalek made two mistakes. Shaul Amalek made one mistake. He didn't kill the king of Amalek. But David got forgiveness 
And Shaul didn't. The question is, why not? Says the Chay Adam. Says to make mistakes in life is okay, we're human. But there are certain moments in our life. There are certain scenarios in our life that are crucial. And that's when we need to stand up. And we don't always get a second chance. Shaul HaMelech had an opportunity to get rid of Amalek. And there was no second chance after that. David was able to make it up. We have to go and we have to rise to our occasion. And this occasion was for, for the rabbi over here. The rabbi that we said over here, this, during the story of the Bar Kamsar, Zechariah ben Avkolos, he had that moment. And that was the moment that he was supposed to stand up. And he didn't stand up for whatever reason. Again, a rabbi, this is a rabbi that on the highest level. We're not saying that he did anything. Like, you know, this is what the Chachamim are telling us. He was supposed to stand up. But the lesson that we can learn is that we have to rise up to our occasions. So that we analyzed the rabbi. Now let's look at the other one. Look at, look at the other situation in the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. What did Kamsa do? Look at this guy. This guy is in the story of the destruction of the temple. He was, Kamsa was the guy who was supposed to get invited and he didn't get invited. And now he's stuck in this, he's stuck in this story. He's like, what did I do? I was just like on the sidelines. You know, like they wanted to invite the Bar Kamsa, you're putting me in the story of the destruction. The last place that any Jew wants to be is in the story of the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. The story of the destruction of the temple that lasted for over 2,000 years. So what did Kamsa do? Why is he in this story? We could have said, you know, there was a host and wanted to invite somebody. Invite somebody else, Bar Kamsa. Let Bar Kamsa be named. So the answer that I saw was Kamsa. Who was Bar Kamsa? Bar is a son. Bar Kamsa was a son. Kamsa was a father. Bar Kamsa was a son. The father, if he had a friend and a son that were having a argument to the point that they were enemies, says, why didn't you do something about it? Why didn't you go and speak to them? If you didn't speak to them, yes, then you're part of this story. You're part of the, fo- the fault, unfortunately. Now let's try to figure out who was Bar Kamsa. Think about, uh, let's take a second to analyze Bar Kamsa. Bar Kamsa gets an invitation. And by the way, the, the custom was in Yerushalayim that if you got an invitation, you didn't go yet because you have to get invited twice just in case you were by mistake invited. But Bar Kamsa went and he came after only receiving one invitation. But he goes over to this party where it's his father's best friend. And his father's best friend hates him. And apparently he, you know, the feelings apparently is kind of mutual or what it appears to be. And now his enemy sends him an invitation. What do you do if you see an invitation from your enemy to come to a certain party? You think, okay, fine, now my enemy wants to make peace. So what would you do? You would go over to this party. The first stop that you make would be you go over to the host and be like, thank you for the invitation. I see you want to make peace. Let's bygones be bygones. Let's go and let's make shalom. Let's make peace. But we see that he didn't do that. How do we know that we see that he didn't do that? Because it says that he sat down and he was eating. The host was walking and he saw Barkamta sitting down, meaning Barkamta never even went to say, thank you for inviting me. He never even went, thank you, let's go make peace. He never even went to for you know to go and to 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 to, to sort of solidify that peacemaking. Why didn't Barkamta go over to him and say, "Hey, by the way, thank you. Let 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 the past be the past. Let's move on from the future." But what happened over here? He goes in and he tr- and he kicks him out of the party. So let's say you know you get insulted. Not you. Somebody gets insulted, like very very bad insulted. What would it be? 
I don't want to say the normal thing to do, but what would be the bad thing to do? You know, if someone embarrasses you publicly, so okay, so this, you would go and you would bash the business, his business, bad mouth him, maybe speak you want to go to a high level, you would hire a hitman, okay? You would hire a hitman and kill that person. That would be the bad thing to do, but still in the, I can't say in the normal range, but let's just use a word, in the normal but bad range, right? Someone embarrasses you, you kill him, right? Assuming you're from the mafia, and that's what, whatever it is, okay? That's what, that's what bad people would do. A bad person would go, you embarrass me, okay, I'm going to hire him, man, you're going to get whacked out. And that's the end of the story, right? You, you made me red, I'm going to make your blood flow. And that's the end of the story and how it goes. But that's not what Barakamsa did. You know what Barakamsa did? Barakamsa is like, you know, you did that to me? How his plan was, he gets on a boat and he travels for weeks to Rome. He goes to Rome and he says, I want to speak to the emperor. Be like, who are you? You're Barakamsa. Like, what's going on? So he had to go and he had to wait for an invitation to speak to the Roman emperor. I don't know how long it took and how much money he had to bribe, but eventually he came to the speak to the Roman emperor. And he goes over to the Roman emperor and he says, hey, by the way, the Jews are rebelling against you. Yeah, I have a problem with one Jew, but now I'm going to destroy the whole Jew. What is this, Haman and Mordechai? What's going on over here? He had to, so he goes and he starts going, I want to destroy the whole, Jew, the whole Jewish nation. And he says, they're going and they're making a revolt. They're going to go and they make a rebellion against you. And he says, what are you talking about? He says, they're not going to make a rebellion. And I'll start, prove it, I'll send, send a sacrifice. He goes with the sacrifice, sneaks in a blemish onto this, to this calf, and he brings it to the, to, to the uh, Bet HaMikdash. The carbon was not, and it, it didn't work out, right? They did not sacrifice that. He goes back to Rome for another few weeks and says, you see, they didn't do that. How extent of this revenge is of what this person did? Look at the extent of it. And in fact, I, I couldn't find the source of it, but I, I, I saw somewhere, and I was trying to find the source of it, that it appears that actually Bar Kamsa was a, a Tzaduki. He was a Sadducee. He, that's because of his method of the retaliation. That was his mindset. But whatever it was, whether it was or wasn't, the morale of Prague, go, morale of Prague goes and says that this description of the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, of what caused it, this described the social reality that was during that time. It was, divis- it was, it was a separation. This is what that Sinat Chinam, the baseless hatred that was going on, the hatred, the, the divisiveness of Klal Yisrael. There was no achdut, there was no unity among the Jewish people. When the emperor heard that the people were, were going to finish in a few minutes, when the emperor heard that the Jewish people are refusing to accept his offering, he was convinced that now they're going to rebel against him and he has got to crush this down. So he sent, he sent a uh, Roman authority by the name of Nero Caesar. He sent him to get, against the Jews. Now this Nero, when he came in, he wanted to test his fate. And how did he test his fate? He went and he shot an arrow in each direction. And every direction that he shot an arrow, it went and it pointed towards Yerushalayim. It fell in Jerusalem. But he wanted another test. And he conducted another one. He goes over to a child. And he says, tell me child, what is it that you learned in Yeshiva today? What is it that you learned? So, so the child goes and quotes a pasuk in, in Ezekiel. In Yechazkel, chapter 25, verse 14. It says, And I will put my revenge on Edom. And Nero goes 
And he says, wait a minute, God wants me to destroy his temple. And what's happened? He's going to get revenge against me? He says, no thank you, sir. He goes and he runs away. He ends up converting. And he runs away from from the the thing. And it says actually that, you know, Chachamim came from him. Rameyer, for example, came from from Nero. Rameyer from the Gemara. So, the Roman government decided that now, and because the general, you know, ran in the scene, they decided they're going to send somebody else, and this is where Vespasian came onto the scene. But before we go, and we continue in that, we'll continue that next week, there are numerous gemarot that speak about the reasons and the causes of the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. Now we know, we know that the Gemara in Yuma, page 9b, is what says that what was the, the reason for the destruction? What we all know, sinat kinam, baseless hatred. The Gemara in Yerushalmi, also in Yuma, if b goes and says, also baseless hatred. The Tosefta in Anachas also goes, says baseless hatred. Oh, we know baseless hatred is a reason for the destruction of the second Bet HaMikdash. But then there's Gemara in Baba Mitzia, page 30b. And it says that the reason for the destruction was because of the... the the, the, they did not judge according to Lefnimi Shuratatin. They didn't go beyond the letter of the law. Ask Tosfos over there and says, wait a minute. The Gemara and Yuma goes and says that it's Sinat Chinam. What are you telling me now that it's something that it's because they didn't judge Lefnimi Shuratatin? They didn't go beyond the letter of the law. So Tosfos goes and responds over there and says, the sources are not contradictory, they're complementary. Meaning both sins contributed to causing of the destruction. And with that in mind, the, if we look through the Gemarot, if we look through the sources of the Torah, the source of the Torah doesn't always only say Sinat Chinam is the reason of the destruction. It does say that that is one of the main ones, but it doesn't say that that's the only one. And I'm going to list you very quickly as we finish off over here, I'm going to list you from a, a bunch of different sources of what was the reason and the cause for the destru- additional reasons as a cause, according to the Tosas, additional reasons and causes of the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. Now with this being in mind, we have to remember, and this is why we, we sort of began the, the discussion, the class over here, with there was a time of Tzidukim over here, and they weren't following the Torah. So the Gemara in 119b goes and says, lists a bunch of reasons of why the cause of destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. Abaya says it was due to the desecration of Shabbat. Abba says that it was because people omitted the Kriyat Shema. They're supposed to do twice daily, they weren't doing that. Rav Amnuna goes and says that due to the interrupting school children from studying Torah, the children were out in the streets instead of studying Torah. Ula goes and says that there was a loss of shame in each other's presence. Rav Yitzchak goes and says that there were common people who are being treated like high-level, significant people. Rav Amram goes and says due to the lack of rebuke, the lack of Musa going from one to one person to the other. Rav Yehuda says due to the belittling of Torah scholars. And Rav says that people were not being, any, there were no more faithful people. That was just the Gemara in Shabbat 19. Again, there's a whole class we can give just on the, these uh, lessons and these reasons. But let's go through a few more sources. The Gemara Bav Mitzia, page 85b. It says, it says that people were not reciting the blessing of the Torah before learning. The Sifri in Korach goes and says that there was a disgrace in the Kodashim sacrifice. The Medrash Tanhuma in Mishpatim goes and it says that the people cheapened the words of the prophets. The Medrash Tanhuma also goes and says it was a belittling of justice, belittling, and the Tanit Ve'aliyah goes, it was also a belittling, 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 going too fast, of Torah. There was a sort of a neglect of Torah study, says the Avod Rabdasan. Again, some of these are also applicable to the first Beth HaMikdash, but regardless, these are the reasons I brought down for the, also for the destruction of the second Beth HaMikdash. 
Now, to try to understand this, and we're going to finish with this thought, is that we know that if you ask anybody what was the reason of the destruction of the first Bet HaMikdash, the Gemara Yuma, page 9b goes and tells us that the first Bet HaMikdash was destroyed because of murder, idolatry, and adultery. There was a three big sins. What was the reason of the destruction of the second Bet HaMikdash? Sinat Kinam, baseless hatred. And the answer is the reason why this baseless hatred comes up as a forefront when we come and we say it is because it's a, this was the widespread cut problem. And in fact, when we speak about Bezat Hashem next week's class, we'll see how much Sinat Khinam really played a huge role in the destruction of the second Bedat. Huge, huge role. In fact, you could really say that this was the cause. However, there was additional issues. There was additional things that were wrong with it. And that was the things that we discussed. So really what we need to do is really focus on all the things. Sinat Khinam is the big one, the one that we need to do. But we have to you know, increase our learning of our Torah. We have to make sure that we recite the Torah blessing. We have to make sure that we honor the Torah scholars. We have to make sure that we're faithful. We have to make sure that we honor the, the righteous people the way that they need to be honored. That, you know, there's the things, the saying the Kiyach keeping Shabbat, all these things that we spoke about, these are all things that we have to fix so that we can have the second temple built by Meher Abayamenu. And with that, we'll open up to the questions. Okay. Let's start with the questions. Okay. Um, okay. Here's the question. Was Agrippa halachically Jewish? So, no. So, the, the answer is because he comes from Herod. And Herod came from a... Um, he came from a line of people that were force, forcefully converted to Judaism. So that was not considered a full-fledged Jew to a certain extent. There was a very like quasi-state that they were in. Okay, next question. If Hashem knew they wouldn't change, why did He have to keep giving messages and it took time? Why didn't He just exile them right away? Also, in our lives, if Hashem knows we won't change, why does, why does He send us messages and gives us so much time to do tshuva if He will punish us at the end? So that's a good question. That's a heavy question. But let's give a simple answer for it. And the answer is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Baal HaRachamim. Even though HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows the future and knows what will happen, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is merciful. And because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is merciful, one of the lessons that we have to learn from this situation, and this is, you, you see this, I see this all the time. You see like people that are atheists. They go against God. And you ask, why isn't that God is not destroying them? Now, we don't want the destruction of people. We want them to do tshuva. But like, why is God not destroying them? And you want to know one reason why? It says, God goes, and if God has so much mercy, mercy if just like He is, He is, has a so too we need to have rachamim. We have to learn. This is, there's a lesson that we could learn from this. That just like people are going and they are going against HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They're spitting in God's face, so to speak. And they're going, and they're going against HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But what happens? HaKadosh Baruch Hu is giving them, and He's saying, let me see what's going to happen. Even though HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows what's going to happen. All the more so when people are against us, when people are doing something to us, and they're going against us, be like, wait a minute. God is so merciful. I mean, even though He knows it will never do Shuvah, He's still so merciful. So much more so that we need to be merciful. Just like, Just like He is merciful, so too we need to be merciful. So that is one simple answer. Okay. Can you, pl- next question. Can you please clarify about what Rab Zechariah shouldn't have been humble for? Was it that he should have attempted to stick up for Bar Kamsa at the party so he wouldn't be embarrassed, or that he should have allowed the emperor's blemish offering to be allowed, or either? The answer is a difficult one. It could be either. The, when the Chachamim and the Gemara goes and says it, it just says that 
because of his humility, the base of Mitzvah was destroyed. It doesn't go in and analyze what part was that. Was it that he should have sat up? It's very possible it could have been all of them or either of them or any of them. But I can't answer that because the Gemara doesn't answer that. But whatever it was, there was something extra that could have been done. And again, this was meant from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that this is what should have been done. And again, this is, you know, you're talking about Zechariah ben Afkaz, you're talking about, you know, Atana. We don't, uh, you know, it's a different level of what you can even think of thinking about to that. Okay, next question. We learn from the Barkanta story that our action in this world has enormous, have enormous effects. This applies both the good actions and the bad actions. It's sometimes crucial to ponder with every move we make, with every word we say, our thoughts, what we look at, how we spend our time. Very, very true. We have so much power that it could, we could build worlds and we could destroy worlds. It's scary. It really is scary of, of what we have. And what's scarier is, is that sometimes we can make a mistake that is not easily reversible. And that's what you got to do. You know, again, this we spoke about before at different topics. But those, yeah, we have to really... Take this into consideration, and the next time that we come to some sort of test, some sort of scenario, let us think twice and be like, you know what? Maybe I won't click on that. Maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll dress extra modestly. Maybe I'll pray extra slowly. Whatever it is that we have, let's take that next level that we need to. Next question is, why did the procurators allow the priestly garments to be used on Yom Kippur if they were against the Torah? So that's a good question. So why did the Roman governments? Why did they even give back the 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 priestly government, the priestly um, the the big day kuna, the priestly garments? And the answer is that even though they didn't care for the Torah and they didn't follow the Torah and they partially against the Torah, their goal and focus was to gain wealth. So if the Jews worshipped or the Jews didn't worship, if it kept some sort of peace in them, they were fine with it. It wasn't like, it was very interesting because in other times in history, if a, a government or a, a empire would rule over, they would force their religion on them. The Romans, they didn't force, to a certain extent, they didn't force it on them. They figured, let's just get the money and let's get the taxes. So this way we have peace. I'll let them do what they need to do. So at the end of the day, even though they were against it, they weren't doing it. They were like, okay, here is the big dekuna that will go and, you know, so that you could go and pray. It wasn't anything for God. It was just more selfish reasons. Okay. Uh, next question. And I'm not reading. There's a lot of kind words that people are sending me in the chat privately. I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm not reading that out loud because, uh, I don't know. It's, yeah, I, but I appreciate it. I have a random question. Nothing is random. That's first. Okay. Is emotional pain like sadness, worry, and nervousness decreed from Hashem and included in the total amount of pain that was decreed from Hashem just like physical pain? Or is it considered a lack of bitachan and is our fault? Excellent question. Amazing question. That question is a bomb question. It's an amazing question. The question is like this. Let's say you have sadness, uh, you know, uh, uh, depression or anxiety that you go and you, um, you, you have. So is that sadness decreed or is it not? It's something that you brought upon yourself. So the answer is, is that a person can, there's something called wallowing in your misery. You know how you have a bad day or a bad situation and you're not, wherever it is, you're not where you want to be in life, whether it's financially, whether it's emotionally, whether it's relationship-wise, whatever it is, you're not where you need to be. So 
the people tend to wallow in their in their misery and they make themselves into a worse state than they are. So the initial state that is menashamayim. That is from heaven. But if you go and you bring yourself down to a lower and lower, meaning that you don't try to get yourself out of that state, that is something that you are bringing upon yourself. You're bringing yourself. Who said that that was the creed from Akadosh Baruch Maybe you're going and you're bringing A person has free will. You have the ability to go and harm yourself. So you don't want to go and bring yourself into that misery. Because at the other at one point, you can think about it and be like, listen, a day after Rosh Hashanah, let me put myself into a depressed state. Let me go for like a week like check off the depression for the entire year, and then I'll smooth sail. But no, that doesn't work like that because you could bring problems and suffering upon yourself and you don't want to do that. So if something comes from outside, that is obviously from, from the Creed and Rosh Hashanah. But where you bring the problem upon yourself and you wallow, and again, wallowing, that's a whole discussion itself. What does that mean? Because if you have something bad co- happens to you, what does that mean? In the second you have to snap out of it? No, you know, we're human and it takes time for us to snap out of it. But there's a certain point where you're just making it difficult for yourself. And I, I've spoken to people People that were very depressed on depression, you know, medication, on, you know, these antidepressants. And, you know, when I speak to them, for years, you know, on these things. And again, you know, people have a very difficult time and we're not judging anybody in these situations. But there was, you know, a few people that could come to mind and be like, you're, why are you wallowing in it? Like, you're on the medication, you could get out. Like, stop being so angry at everybody. Stop being so so upset about everything. Just try to look at more positive things. Now again, it's easier said than done, but we have to do our part in it. Like, yes, we're in a certain state, whether it's depression, anxiety, or any other, uh, you know, emotional imbalance. We have to figure out a way to get out of it. The process is not a simple and easy process, and it takes time. But that process, we're going according to the right direction, then we know in the right place. And everything that was minashamayim. But if we go and we prevent this process from happening, we're like, I'm, I don't want to get better. And you wallow in your own misery. And you go and you don't take your medication that you need to. And you bring yourself more, you're causing problems to yourself. So that would be then would be a more of a, our fault situation. But again, I'm not God's accountant. Got to put that out there. <laughs> so everything only Hashem knows. Next question. How was Agrippa's not considered a legit Jew if his mother or grandmother was a sister of the Kohen Gadol that was Herod? Okay. Uh, so no, his, his, um, Agrippa's grandfather was Herod. Herod was a, was, was not a full-fledged Jew. He was a forced convert and therefore he was not considered a, um, he was not considered a full-fledged Jew for, for that sake. And, and hence the descendants are in the same, uh, same boat. Next question, how did Rabbi Akiva students die and what sins did they do that caused them to die? So the, it's a good question. The, the Chazal, the Chachamim, our sages tell us, they didn't treat each other with respect, which is actually very similar related to Sinat Chinam. So the reason they died, the, the, the Chazal, our sages tell us, is because they didn't treat each other with respect. What did they say and to what extent? You know, there's different you know, interpretations. We spoke about this previously um, in our classes on Rabbi Akiva. But the short answer is they didn't treat each other with uh, the rightful respect that they, um, they should have at, that, at their level. Next question. Wouldn't true mercy be killing them before they make more sins? Or do they not have merit? For example, living 70 years full of sin as opposed to living 30 years full of sin. That's a good question. That's also playing a little bit God's accountant and saying, okay, listen, if this person's going to be a wicked person, we can say that about Hitler. Why did God allow Hitler? Let him, Hitler should have been a stillborn, right? Or it should have been, a, you know, an abortion. Why is it that Hitler got to let God go? Whatever the reason is, 
there are there is free will and we have the ability to go and choose if God would just you know remove everybody that's evil in the world like this there will be no free will <laughs> there will be no nothing wrong the second that you think of something bad God will be like zap you know destroyed so you lose the free will so in order to have free will God allows this uh, bad to happen this this evil to to uh, the sin if you want to say it to go on okay next question what are we supposed to feel in the three weeks, nine days to Shabbat Av? The temple was destroyed years ago. How do we really feel every holiday has something that we need to spiritually get out of it? So the question is... You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.